Thanks so much for joining us for a special hour-long edition of The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. Twenty twenty two may be winding to a close, but Arizona's midterm elections go on. We'll have the latest on the recount and the lawsuits disputing the results as canvassed. Then Governor elect Katie Hobbs joins us to talk transition and about those controversial shipping containers. And after spending months on the campaign trail, Secretary of State elect Adrian Fontes tells us why he's ready to hit the road again. Plus, some of our favorite friends of the field are here to take a look back on the election cycle. Some spirited conversations are coming up. Carrie Lake's election lawsuit got its first day in court this week. The Republican gubernatorial hopeful is challenging the official canvassed results from the November 8th midterms, claiming printer problems in Maricopa County compromised the election. The issues sent some voters to other polling places and caused others to wait in longer lines than normal. Some voters had to drop their ballots into specially designated slots, which Lake claims raises questions about security. She told Fox News' Tucker Carlson more about her complaint. They showed up, they couldn't even find parking because the parking lots were full and the lines were long and many people didn't even get to vote. And those who did vote when they went up to, uh, you know, get the printer out, the printer didn't have toner in it, so the, uh, the ballots weren't dark enough. The former TV news anchor wants the courts to either throw out the current results and declare her the winner or force Maricopa County to hold a do-over. Her lawsuit names Katie Hobbs as both governor-elect and as secretary of state, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, the county's recorder, and its election director as defendants. On Monday morning, a judge will hear their motions to dismiss the suit, then decide if the case deserves to move forward. Republican Abe Homiday's challenge to the results of the state attorney general's race is back in court on Monday as well. Homiday, too, raises issue with Maricopa County's equipment problems. He claims the changes in procedure resulted in at least as many mistakes as he lacks in votes. Hamaday wants a judge to toss out the canvassed results and declare him the winner. Democrat Chris Mays currently leads the race by a margin of just 510 votes. The race is one of two statewide contests that triggered an automatic recount. Republican Tom Horn leads the state superintendent of public instruction race by fewer than 10,000 votes. It, too, is being recounted, although Democratic incumbent Kathy Hoffman has already conceded. County election workers have been busy retabulating the more than 47,000 local ballots cast in those two races. Yuma County Elections Director Tiffany Anderson tells us they're almost done. Anderson took some time out from the counting to give the field a progress report. How are we doing with the recount? Is it done? Yes, I've concluded retabulation of the, um, the two recounted races. And as of this morning, we are starting the hand count. Um, which is a random sample of the recounted ballots to ensure that the tabulators uh, read those ballots correctly. So by the end of the day today, we should be concluded with all recount activities and preparing our final reports for the Secretary of State's office. The results cannot be released by any of the counties. Uh, Those 
final results of the recounted races will be released by the Maricopa Superior Court at a hearing that they have scheduled for next Thursday, December 22nd at nine o'clock in the morning. Pretty much business as usual, easy retabulation. The, the retabulation went faster than I expected. I actually had it scheduled for many more days. Uh, so I was pleasantly surprised with uh, the machine's abilities to get through almost 47 thousand ballots as quickly as we did. That kind of makes the 2022 midterms, from your perspective, kind of run for the history books. Yuma County's 2022 general election went extremely well. Both the regular election and the recount um, went very smoothly. So I am proud of my team and um, the Yuma County Recorder's Office as a whole for our planning and teamwork, um, as well as our voters. The community really rallied around elections and were respectful and participated. And that's really, you know, all we can ask. That was Yuma County Elections Director Tiffany Anderson. And as Tiffany mentioned, the results of the recount will remain secret until December 22nd. Keep listening to KAWC News and watch KAWC.org for those details when the final numbers are released. Governor-elect Katie Hobbs has announced the theme for her upcoming inauguration, and she's inviting the public to the celebration. On Friday, Hobbs launched a new website, inauguration.az.gov, with information on all things inauguration-related. You can get tickets to the ball and get more information on the programs and events leading up to and following the moment she takes the oath of office. The governor-elect is also looking for a young constituent to say the Pledge of Allegiance at the ceremony, and she's running an art contest based on the theme and Arizona for Everyone. We've got all the details on the contest at kawc.org. Meanwhile, Hobbs is doing a lot more than just planning a party. She has an administration to assemble and not a lot of time in which to do it. We talked about her transition, the recount, and what she plans to do with all those shipping containers. First of all, congratulations, and thank you for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So, some really good news on a statewide level that I want to get your reaction to right off the bat. Arizona Zone is headed back to the U.S. right now. Um, Yes, I am so grateful for the work that so many people did. I know the members of our congressional delegation were working to uh, get her back here along with the White House, and I'm so glad that she's coming home. Speaking of the White House, you got a chance to meet with the president. Yes, um, it was a great experience. First of all, we were at an incredible event um, marking a major milestone in chip manufacturing here in Phoenix, um, making uh, chips bringing chip manufacturing back to the United States. Um, So a milestone for TSMC and then a major announcement of additional um, investment made possible by the CHIPS Act. So that was a a momentous occasion to begin with, but then, you know, the president being here made it all the more special. And really it was bipartisan. I mean, the, the, the president and the governor walked out together and that was great to see. Um, I think when we focus on, the things that matter to Arizonans, creating jobs, 
bringing manufacturing back to the United States and, and benefiting all Arizonans, we, we can work together. And, and this was a great example of that. The Arizona economy is doing very well and, and will be for the, and looks like it will be for the foreseeable future. Yeah, but I think we have to make sure that that, 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 um, that uh, benefit is reaching all Arizonans. And we know that there continue to be Arizonans who are shut out of, that, of those opportunities, and we have to make sure it's reaching them, um, which is why, you know, things like um, building uh, chip manufacturing and expanding that industry here in Arizona is so critical um, and making sure that we're providing those educational opportunities, not just here in Phoenix where, where um, the, the plant is, but all over the state so that we're building the pipeline for those jobs because TSMC is not just bringing jobs in the direct plants, but um, the supply chain is moving here as well. And so there's going to be opportunities uh, outside of, of just Phoenix. And, and we need to make sure that those opportunities are reaching all Arizonans so that everybody is feeling the benefits of our great economy. And I think you saw it during your, you know, some of your visits to Yuma um, while you were on the campaign trail. Here in, in Yuma County, farming, it's a trade craft. It, it's, yes. it, there's specific training, and these are some of these jobs are highly skilled, well-paid jobs. So We need to work to uh, help support the agriculture industry, especially in Yuma. It's so important to, um, to Yuma's economy, to Arizona's economy, and to um, food security in uh, not just Arizona, but in our country. You have your transition team assembled earlier last week. I was speaking to um, former Senator Lynn Pancrazy, who's serving on your uh, transition team. Tell me a little bit about how the transition is going. It's going really well. We have a great team put together, chaired by Mike Keener, who is a veteran of state government, and uh, Monica Villalobos, who's the uh, president and CEO of the Arizona Hispanic Chamber. So we're building a diverse team, and really their focus is um, building the cabinet that's going to lead and govern our state. And uh, we have a lot to do in a very short time, and I'm very, I feel very good about how the, how the work is going right now. Um, and then we're also at the same time planning for the inaugural, which is a separate task, but um, very excited about that. And while I have that, while I while I brought that up, I want to mention that we just announced the inaugural theme, which is an Arizona for everyone. And uh, as part of that theme, we're having an art contest for kids in K through eight. Uh, and you can find details at kdhabs.org uh, about the contest. And we're inviting kids to submit art that represents what an Arizona for everyone means to them. And the winners, uh, the winner of that contest will have a chance to say the pledge at the inaugural ceremony and sit on the stage with their parents. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. And we'll get that on the website. Well, you got a chance to meet with um, outgoing Governor Doug Ducey as well. Mm -hmm. Governor Ducey has been uh, incredibly congratulatory and gracious and is committed to doing everything he can do and putting the resources of his team behind doing everything they can do to make sure our transition is smooth and successful. Um, it's important to him to um, to have continuity and leadership um, so that we continue with the great progress that we've made and um, and we're able to usher in our agenda. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm very grateful for his support in that regard. And um, and he has kept true to his word and that um, is offering every available resource to make that happen. But your opponent still hasn't conceded. Concession or not, I'm still the governor-elect. The election was certified. Still going to take office on January 2nd. I mean, do you have some recounts underway? Are you confident the results will stand? Typically, recounts don't 
really don't don't change the the um, outcome of a race. Um, and we know that because we know the systems are secure and and the tabulators were doing what they were supposed to do. We tested them before the the, the general election. So um, and we'll test them again before uh, counties start counting. But yeah, I, I, I'm confident the results will hold. Um, the thing that might change them is any um, lawsuits, but we haven't seen any filed yet. And the window's closing on that, isn't it? Five, isn't it? Five days from December fifth. Yep. yep. So it will be tomorrow. There's been much ado made about the container walls that Governor Ducey put up along the border that the federal yep. government wants to take down. Mm-hmm. Have you given any thought to how you're going to handle that? I'm certainly looking at all of the options. I, this is sort of a mess that we're going to inherit. And I've been pretty clear from the beginning that I saw this as a political stunt. It's not really solving a problem. We've seen numerous pictures of people climbing over the containers, so they're not providing an effective barrier. Um, and, you know, part of the reason that there isn't wall in a lot of those areas is because of the environmental concerns. And now we're contending with, with a, an environmental lawsuit that's been filed. Uh, and so um, we need to find the right solutions. And I don't think the shipping containers are the right solution. And um, we're going to certainly look at taking them down and putting them to, to better use. If I'm not mistaken, I think federal work on permanent barriers in Yuma County is supposed to start early in the new year. So mm-hmm. we'll keep an eye yeah. on that. Like shipping containers aside, border security is an important issue. And uh, I have meetings set up to brief, brief with Department of Homeland Security, uh, Customs and Border Protection. So we're certainly taking this seriously and looking at how we can partner to, to make sure that our that Arizonans are safe and our communities are secure. Well, congratulations on your win, and thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. We spoke to the governor-elect the day before Carrie Lake filed her challenge to the election. In a statement, Hobbs campaign manager Nicole DeMont wrote, quote, Carrie Lake needs attention like a fish needs water, and independent experts and local election officials of both parties have made clear that this was a safe, secure, and fair election, end quote. Hobbs will be inaugurated on January 5th. She's Arizona's first Democratic governor since Janet Napolitano left office in 2009. She'll preside over the state's first predominantly Democratic administration in more than 50 years. Hobbs will be the ninth Arizona governor journalist Howard Fisher has covered since his decades-long career as the founder of Capital Media Services began. Howard's seen his share of political campaigns over the years as well. So has Ernesto Romero, the news director for KYMA and KECY, Yuma's NBC and CBS affiliates, We sat down with these veterans of the election trenches to swap old war stories and reflect on a few of the more notable races. Gentlemen, thank you for your time today. Glad to be here. So we've got a canvassed election, um, officials somewhat. We still have some recounts. I wanted to like talk to you guys about let's look back over the election cycle are there any moments that spring to mind that made that you recall that made you go, "Wow, I haven't seen that before"? Howard, let's go with you. You've been you've been um, covering this for just a little bit longer than the rest well, of us. There have always been candidates who have uh, appealed to the fringe of their parties. Usually, however, that appeal disappears after the primary. I mean, the nature particularly of legislative stuff and sometimes even statewide stuff 
is you, you go ahead and you appeal to the red meat crowd, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, and you get nominated. Then after the primary, you tend to try to move to the center because you recognize that the largest voting bloc in Arizona are people without party designation. They're independent. That clearly didn't happen this year. And it was sort of surprising because the assumption was that as much as Carrie Lake based her primary campaign on the 2020 election and stolen elections and all the rest of that, uh, there, there was a feeling that she would have to move to the center. She'd have to pick up people in the middle. And she clearly didn't. And, you know, the, the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. Carrie Lake lost ground elsewhere in the state, but that wasn't the case here in Yuma County, was it, Ernesto? No, it was not. She um, came in in the lead in Yuma County, especially in some of the more rural parts of Yuma County. If you look at the map, you can see that Katie Hobbs did um, take the lead in some parts of the county that are more within the city of Yuma. But then if you look at the overall bigger picture, it was Carrie Lake who who um, took over the lead in, in our county, uh, which was very similar to uh, the last. I think a lot of people think of Yuma and they think, you know, super Republican. But then you look at the numbers and the Republican lead isn't really that drastic. And I think it's been getting tighter, a little closer every election. So, you know, who knows? We'll see what happens in the next election. But that could be getting even closer there with some of the bigger races that that we're covering. Yeah. And obviously that goes to the issue of the, the, the perennial cry that Arizona is becoming more purple and less red. Mm-hmm. Uh, that remains to be seen, certainly. But the other part of it is, while certain candidates did well in, in rural areas, uh, the fact is that something like 70 percent of the voter registration is in Maricopa County. And you cannot win with a rural strategy. And so, you know, Katie Hobbs won, I think, by about 43,000 votes in Maricopa County. That was enough to overcome the lead that, that, that Kerry had elsewhere. And it ended up being like 10,400 vote. However, however, if I just can interject and Ernesto chime in here, I do feel like this election cycle, rural Arizona got a lot more love from the candidates than it has in years past. What do you think? We saw a lot of people come through. Mm -hmm. We saw we saw meetings with farmers. Do you think that's the case, Ernesto? We had Katie Hobbs. I think she was at JV Farms, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Mark Kelly several times, even Blake Masters coming to visit. So we did see a lot of activity, and that does seem to grow every time we have these big elections in Yuma County. So obviously, you know, Maricopa takes the cake and has the majority of the voters, but I think the candidates are seeing that these rural areas are also important to them, especially when you have these tight races. You know, like for governor, I think there was like a 17,000-point lead, which isn't really that big if you think about it. And then you have even tighter races like attorney general. Um, I believe both of those candidates were in Yuma, too, and not a whole lot of of uh, vote difference there. Uh, so I, I think they're definitely 
still seeing these rural areas, especially somewhere like Yuma County, as as pretty important. And we'll see if that continues the next uh, big race, which I believe will be obviously the presidential, but also cinema running in two years, if I'm not mistaken. So that'll be interesting as well. All right. Well, would you the, bring them you, cinema? <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead, Howard. We can come back well, to well, it. I, it, was, it. It was actually the point with cinema because, you know, cinema has figured out what Mark Kelly also figured out, that in a state that is is at least has a plurality of Republicans over Democrats, again, leaving aside the, 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 the independents, you have to kind of triangulate. This is something Bill Clinton learned over the years, that you, you have to show – I'm not simply Joe Biden's person. And cinema has been very good at that. Cinema has been very good at figuring out you know, how to appeal to Republican issues. Mark Kelly did the same thing. Notice the advertising he ran where he said, well, where I've disagreed with the president, I've told him so. I've disagreed with him on some of his border policy issues. And, and that's what it takes in this kind of state uh, to, to, to win. Uh, you know, and so – the big question, obviously, at this point, A, is cinema going to run again? B, there's been some speculation she might decide to run as an independent. I don't see it. And and C, you know, can she win? I mean, you, you've got people like Ruben Gallego, who's a Democratic congressman from the Phoenix area, who said he may take her up in a primary uh, and, and ask people to find Gallego's somebody. Been, Gallego's been chomping at the bit to primary her for for quite some time. That becomes an interesting question of, you know, how bruising does a primary become and does cinema, you know, want to want, want to engage in that? Or does he decide, oh, I'll go off and do something else? You know, they, these are always, you know, decisions every two years we find politicians making. And then, of course, is the big question of what comes next for Governor Doug Ducey. Howard, I'm convinced you're going to miss Ducey. Well, the fact is, Doug Ducey was the eighth governor I've covered. The fact is, Katie Hobbs is going to be the ninth. So I've got a broad variety to, to, to look through. Um, Ducey generated a certain amount of publicity. I don't think he was as media-friendly as some other governors I've covered. Jan Napolitano, for example, used to have a press conference every Wednesday morning. Lately, Ducey, the only way you can catch up with him is find out where he's going to be. Uh, and and go see if you can shove a microphone in his face. I did that, you know, this week with the uh, with the issue of the lighting of the Christmas tree. And of course, he just brushed past me, and he was busy going somewhere else. Uh, you know, every governor I've covered has had pluses and minuses. Uh, some have been more accessible to the media. Some have been more thoughtful in terms of uh, of of what they do. Some have been just knee-jerk reactions, you know, taxes bad, that sort of thing. Uh, and and Ducey's been somewhere in the middle on that. Let's talk about Ms. Hobbs. What are we expecting? Ernesto, what's your sense? Do we think that rural Arizona will still figure in her plans moving forward? I, I think it will definitely have to. We were just talking about how important you know, the rural areas are becoming every election cycle. But I think one of the big things that we're looking at here in Yuma to see what kind of action Katie Hobbs will take will be along the border because, you know, that has been an item of contention for decades now. And you hear about immigration reform, and it just seems like it's a platform every now and then for whatever political party. So um, when we interviewed Katie Hobbs last month, and asked her if she would comply with 
removing the shipping containers from the border wall. Um, I believe she said that she would. So now that's one of those things that we're going to be looking at, especially with all these lawsuits um, that are surrounding the border wall. But so what is she going to do with, with the border? Is it going to kind of just go ignored like it has from other um, Democrats, I would say? Or is she going to go in and take like more of a like cinema approach or, you know, like a Mark Kelly approach perhaps? Um, so we'll keep our eye on that. Also, with the mega drought and what's happening with our water, obviously in Yuma County, um, water rights are very important to us. It's how uh, we put food on the table for the entire nation at times uh, with leafy greens. So what is she going to do to um, improve those situations? And, you know, what can we all do to um, conserve water and um try to not be in a situation where it could potentially affect that multi-billion dollar ag industry that we have here in Yuma County. And that's an interesting question in terms of water. We saw that, you know, the current governor has this, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call a pie in the sky plan on desalination, but I mean, we're talking, you know, five, 10, maybe longer down the road in terms of the years to, to, to supply the, the urban areas. And I think at some point, and maybe less so in Yuma, as you point out, you know, supplying, you know, the, the winter greens from us to the country. But somebody's going to have to make a decision on use of water. Seventy percent of the water used in the state is for agriculture. Let's talk about the legislature. Are we about it parity? Are we going to see the same tug of war? The fact is we, we've got the same breakup between the House and Senate. We you know the 31-29 House and Republicans and 16-14 Senate Republicans. The mix is, is somewhat different. I think some of the moderates, particularly in the Senate, have disappeared, and that's going to affect things. But, you know, the real – the 800-pound gorilla in this is is, is Governor Hobbs. Uh, you know, she – you know, I, I remember Bruce Babbitt saying, you know, that, you know, governors propose and legislatures dispose. But it also works the other way, that while, while the governor doesn't have a lot of power to pass things, what the governor has is that huge, big, red veto stamp. And governors working with Republican legislators have not been hesitant to use it. I think Jan Napolitano has the all-time record of 58 vetoes in one legislative session because she told your Republican lawmakers, I don't like it. I don't like it. If you send it to me, I'll veto it. And they kept testing her. I think we're going to see a lot of that this session. I think we know that there, there, there are things that Republicans want to send, quote-unquote election reform, which depending on who you talk to, you know, may, may or may not make voting easier or harder for some people. I think there are some people who want to spend some more money on the border. I think the whole school finance issue that we've, we've been talking about, are they going to fix the, 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 the aggregate expenditure limit? If they don't do it under the Ducey administration, will they do it un, under the Hobbs administration? I, I envision her using that, that big red stamp a lot to, to make sure that people know she's in charge. Ernesto, we had some change, a little bit of change in Yuma County. Definitely some changes there, like the State House District 23 race where we had two Democrats. And now one of the winning candidates is the Republican, Michelle Pena, without the accent on the end. Um, and she's actually from Yuma, too. So. That's interesting. I know that she was endorsed by Gary Garcia Snyder, who lost against Brian Fernandez of now, 
going to be uh, a senator for um, us here in parts of, of Yuma County. So I think Brian will follow along, you know, the same type of um, issues that Lisa Otondo has been working on for the number of years that she's been at the state capitol. Um, I think if Gary had, you know, because he's ran for other positions in the past, and I think he's lost all of those races. I think if he had a chance of winning, it would have been this one. You know, he's one of the very vocal election deniers, but as we all know, that did not turn out well for most, if not all of them in November. But if anything, that might have been like his big chance. So we'll see if he runs again for anything. I I have a feeling he will because he always does. I would consider him a perennial candidate. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. That was KYMA News Director Ernesto Romero and Capital Media Services Howard Fisher. You can look for Howard's reporting at kawc.org. I'm Lisa Sturgis, and this is The Field from KAWC. Secretary of State-elect Adrian Fontas tells us he's a man on a mission. He wants to restore confidence in Arizona's elections, and he started to build a team to help him do it. Secretary-elect Fontas spoke with us on the same day Senator Kirsten Sinema announced she was leaving the Democratic Party. Fontas is a Democrat, but told us her affiliation doesn't really matter. Joining us now is Secretary of State-elect Adrian Fontes. First off, congratulations, Secretary-elect. We haven't spoken to you since before the election. Yes, thank you very much, and uh, thank you to all the folks in uh, uh, who are listening, uh, who supported us and voted for us. I'm very excited to get started. I'm talking to you on the same morning when there was some rather major news for the Arizona Democratic Party. Senator Kirsten Cinema has announced she is leaving the party and is going to be independent. Can you give me your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, my reaction is what it would be, <clears throat> regardless of who it was or what party they switched to. Look, we get elected to serve all of Arizona's voters uh, and, and everyone who lives in the state. Uh, and it really kind of doesn't matter what the letter is behind your name. Our goal is to find uh, what things unite us, work on those things, and hopefully we'll be doing so much work in the areas that we find commonality that we won't have time to argue. That's been the goal uh, of, of mine through the campaign, and uh, I think that's what helped bring so many Republicans and independents over to help me become Secretary of State. So uh, I wish the Senator well, and uh, I will continue to do whatever I can along with her and uh, other independents and Republicans to do well for Arizona. But party representation in this administration can't be denied. It has been 50 years since we've had a Democratic governor, a Democratic secretary of state, and presumably a Democratic attorney general. I agree. There is a, there is a significance to this somewhat. Uh, but I'm much more of a pragmatist than a person who cares a lot about the party politics of this. We've got a lot of things that we need to work on. We've got to rebuild trust in already good election systems, uh, and we've got to make sure that the county administrators of our elections, because it is counties who run our elections, uh, get the resources that they need. So 
you know, the party labels, uh, I, I think, are uh, they're, they're, they're wonderful sportsmanship kind of things to talk about. Uh, but at the end of the day, getting stuff done doesn't care what party you're with. It cares about who you're serving. And, and that's really where I'd like to keep my focus. Okay, fair enough. You have assembled a transition team, so you're ready to go. Our announcement came about a week after Governor-elect Hobbs uh, on purpose. We wanted to make sure that she had the space to uh, do what she's got to do. She has a much bigger task. They've got north of 80 different uh, divisions uh, on the ninth floor and, and in the secretary's office we've got some fewer uh, i come to this office with the kind of uh, experience uh, that no secretary has come to this office with uh, so my transition in uh, will not be as 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 uh, challenging you know we haven't had a democrat in the on the ninth floor in, in 15 years or something like that so uh, there's going to be some adjustment i have offered all of my help uh, to the governor-elect uh, in, in, in doing whatever it is she might need me to help with. But, uh, you know, all of us are working as hard as we can to make sure we do the best job possible for all of Arizona's voters uh, and residents and citizens because we didn't get elected to represent a party. Uh, we got elected to represent Arizona. And, again, that's, that's my intention. So, sir, what do you see as job one on what would it be, January 6th? Would that be? Well, January 5th, you're sworn in, so that will be the day that you take office. Yeah, technically we take office on the first Monday, but that's a holiday. So we will take office on January 2nd. The uh, ceremonial swearing-in will happen, as you indicated, on January 5th. Uh, but I've already got, uh, as I've announced, an assistant secretary of state, uh, in Keeley Varvel, she was my chief deputy uh, county recorder at Maricopa County years ago. So we've got a, a team that has worked well together, uh, taking residents on the seventh floor of the state capitol. Um, and job one is going to be get out to the county. We've got to listen carefully to what our county recorders, county election administrators, boards of supervisors, election directors uh, think and want. We've got to pay attention uh, to folks who are not in the, <laughs> the great state of Maricopa. Uh, and then make sure we're serving all of Arizona. That's always been critically important to me. And so uh, that's really going to be the most important thing is really opening up those lines of communication and making sure we're listening carefully. You were in charge of Maricopa County elections during 2020. Unfortunately, we saw some hiccups again this year. Problems with equipment, but no allegations of fraud. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the one failure that the that the county had was not explaining why this was such a good thing. You know, uh, the printers didn't print exactly the way the tabulators wanted them to print, uh, which shows how easy it would be to reject counterfeit ballots, right? Instead, uh, they were really on the defensive. And I, and I think they should have just flat out said, these tabulators are so good. They're so sensitive. They're so careful in which specific ballots they will accept that if the, our own printers are slightly off balance or have one tiny little flaw in them, uh, it's going to reject the ballot. That's a very positive way to look at this thing. Um, and, and I don't blame them for the messaging that they had, but I, they should have taken advantage of this uh, as a positive messaging thing. It really speaks to the idea here, in, in short, uh, that Maricopa and, and the rest of the state, we have really good election systems here in Arizona. It's too bad, though, that the MAGA fascists will continue to peddle their lies. They will continue to pretend like there's something wrong here just because Donald Trump lost in 2020. They need to get over it. They need to get past it. And look, Arizona's voters have rejected them outright. And so uh, it, it's time to move on. But, 
yes, some of these hiccups are, they're always going to happen. There's never been a perfect election. Um, but I think this really <laughs> exhibited a strength in Maricopa County's election, not a weakness. That was Secretary of State-elect Adrian Fontes. Over the course of the election cycle, we've turned to two experts for insight and analysis. Dr. Gina Woodall is a professor of political science at Arizona State University, and Mike Noble is the founder of and chief researcher for OH Predictive Insights. We've talked about OHPI's polling throughout campaign season, so we thought we'd sit down and talk to Mike and Dr. Gina about how well his team did this time around. We also discussed why some of the candidates did so poorly, but we began with Senator Kirsten Sinema's abrupt departure from the Democratic Party. Basically, I mean, is it a surprise or no? Because she, again, when the campaign's done, I mean, that's their reason to give money and everything, right? And they raise all this money and everything else. But as soon as the campaign's over, especially when, when you lose, when you lose, there's no, what, why should they give you money? So like how, you know, it's like a oh, short-term marketing organization. So it went down, so they need another organization. They need another thing to be able to capture funds because I don't think everyone's working for free over there. And, again, what's Carrie living off of? It's not a prize, sadly. It's just the uh, new way of the world. Yeah, maybe it's kind of a, a new norm. Was there a moment that really stuck out for you this year where you're like, wow, I haven't seen that before? Gina? I mean, I can't get over, I mean, what I've been talking about and talking to different people about, uh, obviously, is, is Kirsten Cinema. So that's been in my head the last four days, like, a lot, or the last three days. Um, you know, I think, I mean, the, the biggest... Well, you I know think, what, let's talk about cinema sure. for a minute. We're all going to be focusing a lot on Kirsten Cinema as we move into 2024, because, you know, it sounds like it's a go with Ruben Gallego to challenge her. What do we think about he, cinema? I mean, I think that, I mean, okay, so she's just getting totally pummeled on, on Twitter and Arizona Democratic Party. I mean, they've, they've already censured her. So we knew, I mean, we knew that there was a lot of animosity there uh, based on her position, you know, with the filibuster and not moving forward with a couple of really important votes for kind of the pro- progressive wing of the Arizona Democratic Party here. Um, so obviously, I think it was a, you know, neither one of them really liked each other, right? We, we knew that. And it really, I wasn't surprised that, that she did that um, because her whole narrative, right, since she ran um, a few years ago has been independent voice for Arizona. And she has been an independent before. She's a Green Party, and then she was independent, and she became a Democrat. And she really doesn't fit nicely in the box, although she votes Democratic, uh, you know, the vast majority of the time, not all the time, but the vast majority, she's lockstep with, with President Biden. So so it's not going to change her vote per se. Like she's she's still still going to caucus with the Democrats and she has kind of reaching across the, she has made reaching across the aisle mm -hmm, her brand. mm -hmm. Yeah, she has. And she's really good friends with Andy Biggs. I mean, really good friends with him. And that is kind of, you know, like people are very shocked and upset that she's, that she's good friends with, with somebody like that in terms of MAGA and just everything that he's done. But, but she is. And she said that people 
just don't know him if they don't like it and she doesn't care if they don't like it right their friendship um and so I I, I was not super shocked by it and I, I do think it was the right move if she's going to run again in 2024 she would never win a democratic primary and I but that's like gonna more. that's gonna set up a really interesting scenario don't you think Mike because then she'll run it as an independent so then we'll have both a Democratic mm-hmm. and a Republican mm-hmm. primary to mm-hmm. primary her. So it's basically, uh, it's, she's basically asking for twice the competition. Well, it isn't, isn't. I mean, so what's interesting mm-hmm. about this is that her announcement, uh, zero surprise on our end. When looking at the polling, uh, especially over the last few years, especially once she, you know, was uh, being the stopgap on the filibuster uh, and, of course, some of these other uh, controversial votes, etc., and so she really got a, ton, you know, she really took a beating with her base, uh, mainly among the more liberal wing of the Democratic Party, a more hardcore wing of it, and so, and her numbers really haven't recovered with her base. They've covered up a, a little bit, but especially in the, the the more people on the liberal left uh, compared to more moderate Democrats, uh, they just haven't forgiven her at all. Uh, so it wasn't a surprise her moving to that, but also I think remember prior to Kirsten Cinema. Democrats couldn't win statewide for the life of them. They, they literally couldn't. Uh, they'd run and just get smoked because prior to the 2018 election, every statewide office was held by a Republican. And Kirsten Cinema came along and literally wrote the book for Democrats of like, hey, this is how you win. Now the state looks very different. Heck, it hasn't been since 1950, seven decades, seven decades that Arizona's had two Democrat U.S. senators and a Democratic governor. Seven decades. And like a Democratic administration, too, if the cards play out. You're going to have, you know, Secretary of State and Attorney General Mm -hmm. all Democratic. So So when you look at that, so for her on, okay, can she win? People are like, oh, you're automatically going to lose. Well, no. Remember, at the end of the day, it's getting more votes than the other people in the race, especially if it's a three-way contest. And what's interesting with these dynamics is that cinema has always seems like she's two steps ahead of everybody else uh, and that we're all just kind of catching up. And for her, I think she sees the forest through the trees in a sense that, okay, Democrats are going to run someone and they're probably going to be someone progressive, right? So it's going to be on the, think of this, uh, the political ideological spectrum with your dark blue on your left, your dark red on your right, and then your true moderates in the dead center middle. She's been positioning herself at dead center in the middle since the get-go. Uh, there's going to be someone on the left, so probably in that dark blue category. But Republicans, especially if they do like a Blake Masters type candidate again, that's super far to the right that doesn't move to the middle. There's uh, it's a tough challenge, but there's definitely enough votes there to get a strong enough coalition to do it because there's enough people self-identified moderates and true moderates in the middle, but also moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats uh, to kind of break some of this partisan gridlock between the red and the blue team. And I think what she's banking on right now is that at the end of the day, it's not up to these special interest groups. It's not up to these pundits. Ultimately, it's up to the voters. And Arizonans have a very big, like, you know, libertarian streak or kind of want to be more independent, et cetera, from Goldwater to McCain. And for her, she's perfectly positioned for a general election because that's why in a primary, because of the stuff she's done, she's way too vulnerable in a primary. She wouldn't survive one mm-hmm. if she stayed over there. So it makes a ton of sense for her to move to the middle because, at the end of the day, her fate will be in the voters' hands, but I feel like she has a, a pretty good idea of how she's going to get them. It's done and over. It's relatively done and over with. Is it? Is it? 
<laughs> I'm sorry, the wishful thinking. That being said, OH Predictive Insights per- did pretty good this time around, didn't you guys? Yeah. No, we, we were, you know, it's funny. Not only did we do uh, very well, we were, um, I think, eight, eight for nine on the races we had on record. We had races in Arizona, Nevada, and Utah. Um, it was interesting is that, um, you know, we did really well, but also polling in general did really well this cycle across the country, especially here in Arizona. But where the, the difference maker was is that there was definitely a separation between nonpartisan pollsters and partisan pollsters. Uh, uh, OH Predictive Insights, for example, we are nonpartisan, so we don't fly either flag. We fly the flag of the truth and what data is compared to partisans, right, uh, red team or blue team. And it's interesting, the partisans definitely were far uh, were off uh, much more than nonpartisans. Like, non, nonpartisans were, like, hidden bullseyes across the board. So that was one of the interesting things. Also, takeaway from the polling side was that uh, in last cycle, we saw that there's that shy Trump voter type thing, which there was some truth to it. There's about 3%. So let's say you had, like, let's say uh, a, Trump, uh, a Republican candidate 49% support. Uh, or 46% support, they're actually at 49. So they're like undervalued by about three points. So there was some truth to it, but not enough to put outside the margin of error of the poll. But what we saw in this cycle is that that actually wasn't the case at all for Republicans. The numbers were spot on across the board, that there was no response bias or people not taking the survey. Like that number is spot on. If anything, Democrats were slightly underrepresented just due to um, uh, Roe v. Wade and, uh, and how large the uh, you know uh, younger vote came out even though they're a small demographic group uh, they voted very heavily for Democrats we were all waiting because you know everybody said early on the Democrats are going to lead and then the Republican votes are going to start coming in and it's going to shift well, that was me. you were like yeah. one of many many people and it never happened Mm-hmm. It was kind of anticlimactic. Well, we did not see the red wave that many predicted. Well, why that is is because uh, so based on fundamentals, right? So mm-hmm. we've had elections for a couple hundred years now, and so the fundamentals is that when you have a midterm election, so you don't have the presidential ticket on there, it's typically a referendum on the president. Joe Biden, his numbers are terrible in Arizona; he's like minus fifteen or something with his job rule, so just abysmal, right? And not only that, the top issues, the top three issues were in Republican favor. It was uh, uh, immigration and uh, jobs in the economy. And what was interesting about it is that uh, what made this different is that because all the fundamentals, Republicans should have performed much better. Like they should have got more congressional seats. They should have definitely performed better here in Arizona. What wasn't in the historics that we saw is that there is a big, a big issue of abnormal candidates. Mm-hmm. quality where you had folks like let's say blake masters he wasn't known at all and yes he got trump's endorsement one with 40 percent of the vote uh because about 40 percent trumpers in the gop and so he wins that right but he had no money he had no infrastructure so he just got pummeled with ads and got defined super early and really couldn't dig himself out of the hole when help finally arrived we talked about this previously with dr gina when she cited there was a surprising number of low quality candidates on the republican side yeah and i mean there there were right um Mm -hmm. just just as you said blake masters and 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 carrie lake and, and really a lot of the maga um candidates were the candidates that were as as mike said they just didn't have you know, they kind of came out of nowhere. Blake Masters did not have the funds. To, you know, people ended up not 
supporting him. I think he thought he was going to get, uh, you know, kind of higher fundraising numbers than, than he did. And, and Mark Kelly just had it all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, I think moving forward and thinking the Republican Party is getting together, I mean, they're, they're definitely grappling with it, kind of where, which direction are they going to go? Our thanks to OHPI's Mike Noble and ASU's Dr. Gina Woodall for their insights throughout the field's inaugural season. We'll look forward to speaking to them again in the new year and as we approach the 2024 presidential race. A production note, The Field from KAWC and our Arizona edition will be on hiatus for the holidays, but both shows will be back in January with lively conversations and in-depth coverage of the issues that impact Yuma and the Paz counties most. If there's something you want us to look into, be sure to send us an email or message us on Facebook. And to all the friends of the field, thank you so much for listening and have the happiest of holidays. May the new year bring you joy, love, and light. The Field is a production of KAWC Colorado River Public Media. Send your questions or comments to me, lisa.sturgis at kawc.org. Our theme music was composed by Steve Hennig and performed by members of the Yuma Jazz Company. For more information, visit yumajazz.com. Thanks so much for listening to The Field from KAWC. Remember, you can always hear the show at kawc.org, on the KAWC app, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Lisa Sturgis. Enjoy your holidays and keep yourself informed. (laughs) 